Howdy. Welcome to another week of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and today I had a great pleasure in speaking with Dr. Thomas Brymeyer at Spurgeon's College in London. We talked about his brand new release, Tethered to the Cross, The Life and Preaching of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We talked about the popularity of Spurgeon, sort of London at that time, things like it doubling in size and what contributed to to his popularity. And humble brag, uh, credit to me, I was the first person, as we'll talk about in, in the show, that discovered his, his book, Is a Chiasm. So credit to me, not to brag. But before we get going, we did just publish in the Christian Heritage series, Charles Spurgeon's Lectures to My Students. It has an introduction from Michael Reeves. You don't want to miss this, so listen to the interview today. Go check out Dr. Brymeyer's book, and then if you'd like lectures to my students, get it at canonpress.com. Without further ado, meet Dr. Thomas Brymeyer. Now welcoming on special guest, Dr. Thomas Brymeyer. So you have quite a byline. Uh, University of Edinburgh at P- PhD, lectures in systematic theology and history at Spurgeon's College in London. And as it says here, I was going to figure this out in the interview, but you're originally from Cleveland, Ohio. And I think that makes a lot more sense of the last few minutes with you. Go Browns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we won't talk about anything like too troubling, although it's not too bad for you this year. I feel like five and two. Yeah. I, I'm as surprised as you are, Jake. <laughs> Okay, awesome. Now, Thomas, you just put out a brand new book through IVP, Tethered to the Cross, The Life and Preaching of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. What happened? How did you decide to do this book? And another Spurgeon book, did we need it? (laughs) Yeah, good question. So, the genesis of this came um, about 10, 12 years ago. I was a master's student at Wheaton College, and I was studying with Tim Larson who you had on the program I yes. think, probably about a year ago. Is that right? Yes. And uh, Dr. Larson let me, very kindly let me sit in on a PhD seminar he was running, and it was called The Bible in the 19th Century. And it was interesting because most of the people were looking at academics and, you know, these superstars of the 19th century uh, Benjamin Jowett, um, Westcott and Hort, these kind of folks. And I just thought it would be interesting to look at biblical interpretation, not from the kind of academic side of things, but more the congregational side of things, the pastors that people were hearing one, two, three times a week, um, and how they approach biblical interpretation. And so Spurgeon had 300, or excuse me, 3,500 or so sermons in print, and we had them all in Wheaton's library. So I thought I won't run any uh, short of sources. And so I just started digging into that, and it turned into a nice bit of research. And I thought, actually, there's probably a book here. I took some time off in the private sector, just working in construction of all things. And when I went, to apply at the University of Edinburgh, I thought, actually, maybe the Spurgeon idea might be a good topic for a PhD. And that's really how it started. 
I want to just take this moment to apologize for, I think I said Edinburgh. It turns out I'm a fraud. So Edinburgh sounds way cooler. And I think I knew that. Well, <laughs> no worries, man. It's, uh, it's part of the orientation process for the Americans <laughs> when you start studying there. So, Okay. So now we're big fans of uh, Dr. Timothy Larson. He just did two great introductions for us. We put out the Princess and Curdy series. And he gave us phenomenal introductions So, if, if uh, by George McDonald. So if anybody is curious about those, you should de- definitely check that out. But he did a great job of unpacking sort of that Victorian world. As sort of it came to bear for your particular project, can you tell us about the world Spurgeon was in? Yeah, absolutely. It's, so Spurgeon's born in 1834, uh, just a couple of years before the coronation of Queen Victoria. So he basically runs alongside the reign of Queen Victoria, just to put him in a little bit of time and space. And he's a country boy. He grows up in between sort of Essex and Cambridge. And this is rural now, but it was even more rural then. And so it's a bit of a juxtaposition, this guy who uh, grew up on a farm with his minister, Congregationalist minister grandfather, uh, coming to the urban center of the world in many respects in London. The population of London basically doubles twice in the 19th century. So you can imagine the overcrowding. You can imagine when you have things like cholera that are being even more stirred up by bad sewage production, uh, sewage processing and these kind of things. Um, London was a really tough place to be. But then on the flip side, the 19th century gives birth to a bunch of different um, programs and processes that you know, are still around today in terms of improving sanitation, in terms of literacy. So at the beginning of the 19th century, roughly 45, 48% of men and considerably less women were able to read. Yet by the end of the 19th century, we're looking at kind of 97, 98% of both could read. Wow. So um, it's a tremendously turbulent politically, um, economically, um, tons of migration going back and forth. So London is seeing itself transforming, but it's also in the process kind of of transforming the world around it. And Spurgeon's right in the middle of it. Yeah. So it's not all just uh, like basically Dickensian little boys with like dirt and rags and, you know, shuffled off to the side of the the street there. Well, I think that's part of it. And um, it, it is worth saying that where you, your experience of Victorian London would be at least in many respects, kind of tied to your income or lack thereof. Sure. Um, so it's so Spurgeon starts an orphanage for that reason, and within five years he's housing, I think, about eight hundred boys and girls. Wow! And he's and he's not you know the only one doing this at the time. He's trying to create something that's more family focused, more family centric, and. By all accounts, does a pretty good job of it. Okay, so one thing right off the bat almost, if I remember right, in the book was you mentioned that Spurgeon revolutionized sermon distribution. So anybody living today knows, you know, like sermon distribution is pretty big. You could listen to anybody's. I mean, most people are literally taking it to the point that they have like 
they just watch sermons in their home and they call it church. But Spurgeon was sort of the first in that, you know, distribution level. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so before Spurgeon, um, when we're looking at folks like Whitfield or Wesley, the sermons that we have of theirs will either have been sermons that they scripted out themselves before they preached them, or they will be sermons that they kind of remembered roughly what they said and then wrote them down afterward. Hmm. But Spurgeon gave us something new, and it was a development that was going on in the business industry that he saw happening around him. So he began to employ stenographers who would have been working before the days of recording your Zoom calls or something like that. If you (laughs) wanted to have detailed minutes of your meeting, you needed a stenographer there. And that was another way, particularly where women who uh, might be widows could make some income for themselves taking notes. So Spurgeon employed a number of stenographers who would take down the sermon as he preached them. He would walk up to the pulpit with really minimal notes and then preach a sermon that would end up being about eight, 9,000 words long over the course of an hour. Wow. And then these ladies would take them down and they would be typeset during the week and he would make edits, um, usually things just to make them a bit more readable. And then by the next week, you could purchase the previous week's sermon printed, ready to go for a penny. Wow. And this goes, this goes even further. Um, and he's as technology develops. So it became possible toward the end of Spurgeon's ministry that portions of his sermons would be published in newspapers in New York and Boston the week after they were preached, which is kind of unprecedented when you think about this is the 1880s. Right. Right. So what what was it like? What gave him that idea? What, what was it just something he thought this is something we should put? I imagine that cost him money. As you mentioned, that was a way for those stenographers were making an income. Like, why did he choose to invest and put equity there? I think that I did read something about this when he first set it up. But if I remember correctly, it's this idea that He wants to be able to give people the ability to look back on something if there was that point that really caught your mind. Right. And you wanted to go back to it. Or if you heard something in the sermon that you thought, actually, this is really encouraging. I'd really like to be able to share this with my relative who lives somewhere else. Not only was it accessible, it was affordable. So people could pick up a copy of Spurgeon's sermon and send it to a relative who lived somewhere else, these kind of things, or just keep it for themselves. Sure, sure. Now, can you talk a little bit about the structure of your book? So looking over it, I thought, uh, even just looking at the table of contents, I had this sudden rush that this might be a chiasm, but I didn't want to speak too soon. I thought I'd let you tell us. (laughs) Can you talk about how you decided to, to put the book together? Yeah, very well spotted. Um, I think you're the first person to recognize the cause, oh, wow. actually. Nice. So, well done there. Um, nice. So, for uh, those who might not know, uh, or if you don't have the table of contents in front of you, what I've essentially done is have chapters at opposite ends of the book parallel one another. So, chapter one is Spurgeon learning theology and first encountering the Bible. Whereas chapter six, the final chapter, is Spurgeon teaching the Bible in his college that he set up. And then similarly, we look at his printed material 
in the early days and in the latter days in chapters two and five. And then chapters three and four are his own Old and New Testament interpretation, respectively. So I knew that a thematic approach would probably be best, but I wanted to be able to give it a sense of chronology and that you could see his ministry taking off and taking shape and different controversies that you get stuck in, how those might inform or shape things down the road. And I hope that that came through as well, but... Of course, of course, it definitely did. Yeah. Um, So, and maybe this is an opportunity now in terms of like, so that's how you set up the book and you're thinking maybe if the theme approach is best to to get across my particular thesis, which I had a question about. In terms of your thesis... Cross-centered and conversion-centered is kind of what I took away from that. Is that fair? Yeah, that's it. So this to, I think, like my listeners, that's great news. We That means that's a solid preacher, and none of us would have guessed otherwise about, about Charles Spurgeon. But as opposed to what? Like, why would this thesis stand out, maybe in terms of the Victorian world or even our world today? Well, in a couple of ways. So I'm certainly not saying with that thesis that Spurgeon is the only one who does this. So I mean sure, for sure, sure. your listeners for your listeners who know David Bebbington's kind of famous quadrilateral definition of evangelicalism, that's two of the four uh tenets of evangelicalism, conversionism, crucicentrism. And so I'm I'm not making these up or saying that they're unique to Spurgeon so much as I'm saying they are the overwhelming drive behind his approach to scripture. And what I try to do, particularly in the center chapters where we're looking at his sermons in particular, is hold him aside some of his contemporaries from a fairly wide range of ecclesiastical camps just to see how he interprets certain passages versus someone who might be coming to it from a sympathetic Protestant perspective, but wouldn't go to the cross in the way he did, or wouldn't see this as an appropriate place to talk about the gospel message um, in the way that Spurgeon did. So what I found is generally that Spurgeon does tend to go to the cross and to do so with an aim to seeing people coming to faith in Christ. And he's not letting the location of the passage in the biblical narrative stop him from doing that. Right. So in terms of that, would you say this particular thesis is one of the few things, is one of the maybe many things that made his congregation grow like it did? I think so. So we have to consider him holistically, I suppose, and he is a winsome, just larger-than-life preacher. It's not just his approach, his oratory and his way with words, um, just kind of weaving them together lyrically, poetically from the pulpit. It seems kind of like high English to us today, but it would have been much more kind of pedestrian and accessible in his own day. Right. So the way in which he speaks, I think, is particularly engaging. And there's a great book that came out just as I was finishing the book, and it's a series of elder interviews for membership at Spurgeon's Church. And one of the things when you're reading these testimony accounts of people who listen to Spurgeon you, you're given the firsthand accounts of men and women 
who listened to his preaching. And what most of them said was, I felt as if he was speaking directly to me. And they could be in a room with thousands of other people, but there was a sense in which what he said struck them completely personally so that none of the other stuff even was mattering to them. So I think that his, his capacity as a preacher brought people to that place, but I do think that his theological commitment to the cross and to conversion probably formed the basis of the church growth, at least in terms of people coming to faith. He does become a tourist location in London, certainly by the middle of his ministry. So he is part of the tourist hit on London, which is uh, also accounts, I think, for some of the popularity. Sure. Sure. So in terms of that church and him being, you know, I think I've heard before folks say it's he's kind of presents the first sort of mega church in terms of like, there's this many consistent people going every Sunday, whereas you mentioned a couple others, traveling preachers like Whitfield and, and the rest where they were very popular, but they're not necessarily going to be in the same spot every Sunday. Did Spurgeon, was that unique as well? Yeah, he was doing something completely unprecedented in terms of the size of the church. He ran out of space in the building when he was, you know, still in his late teens, called as the pastor. And so they started meeting in halls. And he eventually, in when he's 23, he preaches a fast day sermon in the Crystal Palace, just down the road from where I'm sitting. And 23,000 people came to hear him. No microphones, no amplification, just a room full of people wanting to hear what he had to say. Right. So... I think that it's probably one of these things where the growth of London and the pace of London and the setting of London made it so that building a church that seated 5,500 people didn't seem as out of place as it might have just about anywhere else in the world at the time. But yeah, I think it's just kind of a perfect combination that led to the church growing in the way that it did. Uh, yeah, definitely a perfect storm, it, it would seem. Now, one of my favorite things, so given you mentioned your structural in, in terms of like you start with him learning theology, you finish with him teaching and preaching and starting institutions. One of the things that I find fascinating about studying the greats or, you know, people that we have a, at least account of them in their early years to their late years is I love watching the trajectory, whether it's, you know, their maturing thoughts or what does their life lead them to in terms of like maybe changing their mind about a thing or or what have you? Was there anything about him that you thought this is an interesting through line that matures through his life, whether it's like uh, it could be about a theological position or or anything anything that you found? Yeah, I think one that's interesting, Jake, is the way in which he relates to other Christians around him. So, he grew up as a Congregationalist and then came under a conviction of Baptistic theology shortly after his conversion. So he leaves the theological camp that he's raised in and joins the Baptists. And when he's young, he's fairly combative with 
Pedo-Baptists, and he's got a lot of zeal <laughs> yeah. that you'll see. Um, They're a pesky the group, the Pedo-Baptists, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm among them myself, so. Okay, he's, well, same. He's a, uh, yeah, so he is a zealous convert, okay. both to Christ, but also to Baptist theology. Okay. And yet, by the end of his life, I think it's extraordinarily telling that the gentleman who ran his orphanage was a Pado-Baptist, that okay. the first principal of his college was a Pado-Baptist. And indeed, he was replaced at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the last months of his life and the year to follow by an American Presbyterian. Okay. So I think the, the breadth of his friendships and his willingness to um, reach across the aisle in lots of different evangelical Protestant friendships and connections, I think is a really interesting development. And it goes a little bit counter to what I thought I would find from that. Is there anywhere that he might unpack that specifically? Or is this, I mean, you, the way you mentioned it, it's sort of like, well, all of a sudden near the end of his life, we find that he's surrounded by Pedobaptists. Is there, is there anywhere he talks about it? Um, it's an interesting one. He justifies the principle of the college at one point by essentially saying that he is extraordinarily gospel-minded. And remember that Spurgeon loves the Puritans. So I think when he is a little bit uneasy about particularly Reformed Pedo-Baptist person, if they're kind of Puritan to him, he's like, oh, well, you know, they're probably okay. <laughs> and he loves Calvin too, so. Right. So I think he, I think he mellows in the kind of uh, more isolationist mode that he starts out with as a young man. And I think he, I think he benefits from it as he considers wider friendships and partnerships. Totally. Well, praise God. So you just sort of, you know, red flags everywhere here. You're a Pedobaptist and you teach at one of the institutions uh, that he left. So maybe I'll ask two questions. So when that last chapter, you mentioned sort of the institutions that he started there in terms of training institutions. Can you talk about those? And then maybe let's link it directly to you who teaches at one. Sure. So Spurgeon set up a couple things. Um, he had a college for pastors started very soon after he arrived in London. Now, this was essentially he wanted to, it would have been a mentor and apprenticeship program initially. And the gentleman, George Rogers, who he had recruited to do this, within a few years, found himself the principal of a college that had a few dozen uh, people studying for ministry at it. So it was one of these things where I think it just grew a lot faster than anyone seemed to expect it. But the interesting thing also is that Spurgeon, by the 1880s, had stocked all the Baptist Union churches. And so he still has students wow. who are about to graduate. So he and his brother survey different areas of London where churches are not representative of the overall population. And they begin renting rooms in pubs or in other spaces and sending the students there to preach. And if they get enough of a critical mass, Spurgeon and his brother would raise the funds to build a church in that area. So essentially, when they ran out of churches, they started building new ones. And some of those are still around today. Wow. So 
There's another thing that's kind of interesting, which I bring up in the final chapter, and it's a little bit less well-known, is that Spurgeon started evening classes. And these were for men and women who would have fallen off the radar of public education and for whom any hope of social mobility would be tied to either being able to read or understand basic arithmetic, these sorts of things. And so his lecturers, uh, my predecessors of the day, would teach evening classes for people who were working in factory jobs and in other kind of dangerous work that might not have paid too well to equip them to work in different environments. And also, what was interesting is that biblical and theological study was incorporated into that as well. Okay. So now, is what he was doing at night directly related to where you work now? It was in the sense, the college has moved on a bit since Spurgeon's day. It was not, it was essentially trading on the recommendation and the reputation of Spurgeon. And that was very much sufficient and indeed quite valuable in the 19th century. But in the 21st century, you know, we are, uh, we're validated by the University of Manchester. So to study at Spurgeon's now is to undertake a bachelor's or master's degree like you would at any other institution in Britain. Sure. Sure. Now, how in the world did you end up there, you know, clad in, in Cleveland orange? <laughs> Excellent. So I was living in Edinburgh and I had finished my PhD and was helping with a church plant in the west side of the city. And I had really wanted to stay in the UK. And I had applied for all the jobs that came up, even remotely related to Christian ministry and academia in Britain. And I wasn't sure what was going to stick. And as it so happened, I wasn't expecting a call from Spurgeon. I had thought that the position was filled. And it was right around a season where I was getting quite a lot of spam calls uh, trying to sell me insurance or these sorts of things. And so I avoided this call for about two days. And then I thought, I'm going to look up who these people are so I can tell them off. And I went to look them up and I realized it was Spurgeon's College. And <laughs> I kind of sheepishly called and they said, hey, would you like to come down for an interview? And I said, sure. And next thing I knew, I had come down to London and got set up in the post teaching history and a bit of theology. Wow. And they know that you, you know, will baptize babies. Well, I'm not ordained, so I don't do it myself. Right. But I should say that... But you've the, seen it happen, probably. <laughs> yeah, and myself as well. Yes. But okay. It, it's an interesting place. Spurgeons have a variety of theological positions of staff. There's some Anglicans. We have uh, Pentecostals and people from a bunch of different traditions. I mean, my boss is uh, an Anglican. So it's quite cool to see the different connections. Everyone here will sign the Evangelical Alliance basis of faith, and everyone here will agree to be respectful of the Baptist Union's core principles. And beyond that, we encourage good dialogue across traditional spaces. Sure. It's, this is not just an Anglican sabotage uh, takeover. Well, my Canterbury mission aside, no, it's just <laughs> uh, no. I'm grateful to be a part of a of a diverse faculty. 
and in a very international faculty as well. So it's it's genuinely a privilege to be able to have representations from um, different evangelical traditions. And I think it represents our student body as well. Now, you mentioned that you really wanted to stay in the UK. What year was that? And then how come? Yeah, so I'd been in the UK, I think for about five years at that stage. And for me, I personally felt that the UK was a pretty amazing place to serve the church. And it was a real awakening to me to see Christianity in a different country and to get stuck into church life in a different country. And I realized that in America, we took maybe took for granted the number of seminaries that are on virtually every corner and different opportunities to work in large churches and these kind of things. And there was a sense in which the UK really felt like the front lines. And I, I enjoyed being on the front lines. And I thought for whatever I could do to stay and fight, I would like to stay and fight. Amen. Very cool. Well, listen, I thank you so much for the interview, man. I know we kind of missed each other on times, but very grateful for your time. And I'm wrapping up your book as we speak. I can't recommend it enough to folks. Go get Tethered to the Cross, The Life and Preaching of Charles Haddon Spurgeon from IVP. Go get it today. And and as we we were mentioning before we started recording, it's a very it comes packaged very nicely. It's a very nice book. So go get that today. And uh, we'd love to have you back on anytime, Dr. Thomas. Thanks very much, Jake. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.